Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and today we're privileged to meet a man who not only makes it his life mission to experience as many of the world's best golf courses as he can, but in his spare time, he caddies for one of the world's top 10 best women players. Mike Clayton and I caught up with Tom Watson. No, not that Tom Watson. Just hours before the opening round of the Women's British Open at Royal Birkdale. Tom caddies for So Young Yu, a former US Open winner, and as I mentioned, a top 10 player in the world. We chatted with Tom about all things golf, but we started by asking what exactly a caddy does to prepare for a late tee time on day one of a major. Yeah, I just wake up and have a coffee and you might have a look at, look at the few of the scores before you tee off and uh, might sort of see what the wind's doing. And um, other than that, not much. Last I looked, you were tied for the lead because Evan was still leading, so that was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, there's, a familiar, there's a familiar name called Woods leading at the moment. Oh, there you go. Jay and Woods just went to one under par for oh, three holes. All right, so, I see. Uh, that's always good. Yeah, there you go. I thought Curry Webb was up there earlier too, so which is fantastic. You see, Clates, the caddies get it easy, don't they? What's the player doing a couple of hours before tee off in the major in a major in the first round? They just stressing now. Have we said that who Tommy caddies for? Oh well, I we have not. Tom, tell we us who, who you caddy for. It should be in the intro, which we're going to record later. There's a oh, little right, secret okay. for the listeners to <laughs> to see right. how things work. So, so Yonru, of course, is your your player, Tom. Uh, I work for a Korean named uh, Soyeon Ryu. Mm-hmm. She's uh, just turned 24 years old, and um, currently she's uh, in the top 10 in the world. Mm-hmm. Not sure exactly what the number is, but uh, yeah. A former US Open winner, of course. Were you on the bag for that US Open victory? No, I wasn't. She actually had uh, Dean Hurden, another Australian at the time, and um, that's how I actually got the job through Dean. He couldn't actually do it full time, and um he handed the uh, he handed the bag to me. Now, did Dean go on to work for GA Shin, or am I imagining that? No, he did, he worked for GA Shin before oh, that, actually. Okay, there you go. So Look, it raises one of the points I wanted to ask you about, Tom. Why this plethora? It seems they're everywhere. Kiwi and Australian caddies, particularly on the LPGA. Michelle, we had a Kiwi on the bag when she won the US Open a couple of weeks ago. And Dean Hurd, and you've already mentioned yourself. There's a lot of them around. What's the, is there? Is there some reason, or is it just happenstance or coincidence? Uh, I think it's just a personality thing, to be honest. Um, I think uh, a lot of the Koreans are very sort of, um, well, Michelle's a bit of a different, uh, she's actually quite lively, but most of the Koreans sort of don't like to talk and, you know, sort of very regimented. And, and uh, I think, uh, I'm not saying all Americans, that's, that would be a bit harsh, but I think a few of them probably, the you know, a bit loud or something like that, and it sort of puts them off a little bit. And uh, I think uh, that's why a lot of the Koreans sort of take a lot of the... Uh, the foreign caddies, the Australians and the New Zealanders. I'm not saying that happens in every case, no, no. but uh, it is probably a little bit of the ladies to it. There's certainly something you said culturally, isn't there, Clates? You go to the other side of the world, particularly to go from Asia to the US as a player, there's an awful lot to deal with outside of just trying to organise your own game. The last thing you need is a caddy that you're not particularly uh, well matched with, isn't it? And, and Australians have always been good caddies, I think. I mean, I mean obviously, seeing you successful will claim Steve Williams as well, but... <laughs> There've been lots of lots of good Australian caddies over the years who, who have they've got good senses of humour. They seem to know how to say the right thing at the right time. They're sort of yeah. you know they don't drink so much. They they turn up on time. They they care about what they do. Uh, when I played in Europe, there were lots of Australian kids over there caddying, and they're all really good at it. Mm. So um, it wasn't only the Australians who hired them, no. and the, and the South Africans too tended to be pretty good. 
Yeah. There's a there's probably a wanderlust element to that too, I think. Australians and Kiwis in particular tend to travel a lot, don't they, Clates? You bump into them everywhere overseas. Because we live on the other side of the planet, it's not at all unusual for Australians to take a year off and go. So there's something in, in that too, I think, in that, that willingness to travel and the want to experience different cultures maybe. Yeah, and I, and I think you know, certainly when I played, there were, there were kids who would go for a year and just have a year off after school and caddy and some of them are still at it and some of them lasted – well, not, not many of them lasted only a year. They tended to stay out there for mm. three or four or five years. And what a, I mean, just a tremendous way to see the world. If you love golf, it was mm. – I mean, really, the year after I left school, I wished I'd gone to Europe in 1975. I probably could have carried for Bob Shearer or someone really good like that and would have been a great way to spend a year learning how to play and seeing Europe and what a time it would have been in Europe in 1975. Fantastic. It's extraordinary that you claim Steve Williams. He's one of the few Kiwis that we haven't claimed yet. He doesn't even own a house here, mate. I don't think we're going to get away with that, with that one. <laughs> He's caddied for a few Australians, but I don't think we'll get away with that one. Tom, what's your take on that? Is it, doesn't what Clates is saying make sense? He talked in particular, you know, that they don't drink as much as the caddies. It's a very different business caddying these days to when Clates went to Europe, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure about the drinking part because Clates and I got we had quite a few drinks the night before the Craft Nabisco this year, but <laughs> but uh, no, look, I definitely I think the uh, you, you, the want of Australians wanting to go overseas, you know, and travel and do that, and I think that's um, has a lot to do with it. And you know, when you're wanting to get out and get overseas, you, and you want to see great golf courses, yeah, you, you're not going to be drinking as much and that sort of stuff. You want to see great courses, and you um, you get right into it. And uh, I know that's the case with me too. You know, every week off I get. You know, I don't go back home and chill out and sit on the couch. I go back and play great golf courses, and I'll travel as far and as possible as I can to, to see these great places. So, which is exactly yeah. why we've got you on the show. We want to talk to you about that. But just before we come to that, is caddying harder work than it looks, and than most people necessarily appreciate? It's certainly, for the most part, an underrated part of the game. Steve Williams probably gets his due, but as a job, are you a more professional bunch, and is it a much harder job? than a lot of golf fans necessarily realise. Yeah, definitely. And it definitely, I think now, um, you know, we're playing for a lot of money now. And um, it's, you know, Caddy gets 10% and, you know, on the PGA Tour, you know, if you're winning a tournament, mm. you know, Caddy's going to get $100,000. Mm. So it's become big business. So there's a lot more people wanting to be a Caddy. There's a lot more involved now with Caddy in regards to yardage books and lasers and all those sorts of things. And it's become a lot more professional and exact. And, um, yeah, I mean, you've got to be a little bit of everything as a caddy. And I, I noticed that because I've caddied on the men's tour and the women's tour and there's such a, a difference even with that, you know. You, with, and I've said it to Clates before, with women you deal with emotions and with men you deal with egos. So it's all a matter of, uh, you know, it's all a matter of, you know, being able to say the right thing at the right time and, and you're a little bit of everything, you know. You're 5%. One day you might be 5% golf coach, the so next day you're probably 5% psychologist, then you're 5% comedian and then you're, you know, 5% shrink or whatever, you know, it's, it just depends on the situation. And so there's a lot involved. Yeah. And of course, I guess the point there, it is actually a proper job now, isn't it? It's, it's not the ragtag bunch that it used to be that you read lovely stories about, romantic stories about from 70 or 80 years ago. It's a very, it's a real job, yeah. a proper job, a proper career now, isn't it? And um, yeah, yeah, it is for sure. And of course, just yeah. before we come to the course architecture thing and your interest in that, Clates, uh, you have a lot of full time caddies now and players who have full time caddies that they employ for years. I and mean, that wasn't so much the case even when you went to Europe, was it? I mean, maybe some of the top guys, but you know, you didn't have this notion of a team for most players um, back then. It's very much a caddy is very much a part of the team that golfers tend to build these days, isn't it? Very different to, to some time ago. 
Yeah, when, well, the big, one of the biggest differences was when players took a week off, their man would go and carry to someone else. I mean, what, Steve Williams was working for Michael King. Michael took a week off and Steve came and carried for me for a week. So, so I mean, now that would never happen. If you carry for Tiger Woods and you carry for Tiger Woods and you don't have 25 weeks working for someone else, you have 25 weeks off the same as he does. Mm. So they don't move around as much as they used to, but, you know, it's a... It's an interesting job, and it's it's. Um, Tommy's been at it a long time now. I'm, I'm assuming he, he's kind of answered the question, but he came for Brendan Jones in Japan for six years, and then Sayong now for two. So he kind of answered the question about the big differences. You're dealing with emotion and ego and anger and tears sometimes. And I, I mean, the, Tommy, your classic line was Sayong, who's always at the top of the greens and regulation. Now, every week she's in the top three or four greens and regulation. She hit a hook the other day. Was that about yeah. a month ago? Yeah, just for the people who are listening, just tell everyone the line that when she hit that hook off the third hole. Yeah, well, it was just a, I mean, she hit it off the tee and it was like a pull draw. It wasn't even a hook. It was just this pull. It was fine. You know, I would have been wrapped with it. And it was five yards into the left rough and she turns around. She goes, oh, my God, what's wrong with my swing? <laughs> and I said, I said, you're five yards up the fairway in the first cut. You've hit a slight pull draw. I think your swing's fine. Yeah. But perhaps the thing wrong with your thing is you expect too much of it. We are people. We're humans, not uh, not machines. Can you give us an illustration, Tom, of, of what you did mention there? As Clay said, you kind of answered the question. But is there maybe an example where you've been in a similar situation with maybe Brendan or without embarrassing anybody, and with Soyon or one of the other girls, and the different responses they've had that, that makes you say that in one case you deal with egos and the other with emotions? Is there anything that sort of sticks out in your mind where you could sort of say that really encapsulates that? Um. Ah, my God, it's two completely different human beings. Um, yeah, with I guess with... Brendan's not ego, is he? Brendan Jones, you couldn't say ego, could you? He's the most laid-back bloke you could come across. No, you can say yes. Okay. Well, you, you can. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> yeah. He was the closest thing to a serial killer that I've ever come across in my life. <laughs> Get the lawyers to check that, yeah. <laughs> um, look, I think... Uh, there's not a. I guess I have to be more sensitive with Soyon. I guess when there's something it's sort of gone wrong with with Soyon, I've sort of I've been really sensitive with it. And with Brendan, when a situation occurred, I had to get firm and hard with him, and really had to stand my ground. So I guess there wasn't really a situation that that came that comes to mind. It's just more how I've handled a certain situation. You know, if, uh, if a wrong club had happened, or um, you know, a couple of bogeys in a row, for instance. You know, we were so on, I'd just sort of be a little bit more passive and I'd say, you know, okay, well, listen, it's, you know, it's not that bad. You know, we're, we're, we've still got, we've got a couple of par fives to come. You can make a few birdies. Just relax and chill out. Where Brendan, on the other hand, he made a couple of bogeys. You know, he's throwing clubs. He's going berserk. He's, you know, he's telling the gallery to shut up. He's telling garbage bags to stop moving. He's doing everything. And you've just got to say, listen, just pull your head in. What are you? Just listen. This is how it is. Just <laughs> shut up. Stop complaining. You're looking like an idiot here in front of everyone. Just play golf. So um, it just depends on that personality of the player, I guess. Well, two, two sides of Brendan Jones. I've certainly never seen that side of him, but, of course, I've only ever interviewed him, never caddied for him when he's made a couple of bogeys in a row. Do you need that, Tom, in your experience? Do players, does, do players need to have that fire? Obviously, channeling it is important in the right way, but if you don't have that in a way, are you able to compete at the top level if, you're not, if it doesn't drive you nuts to make a couple of bogeys? 
Yeah, definitely. You definitely do. You definitely do need that fire. And exactly like you said, you know, you've got to be able to channel it. And, um, you know, and uh, that's, you definitely, if you're not going to have that fire, yeah, you're not going to be able to perform. But at the same time, if you've got too much of that fire, you know, you start getting on five or six bogeys in a row and that's how it is. And and it's, it's, it's how you look in front of the gallery too. Like if you're carrying on and really going berserk in front of people that have paid $25, you know, to get in and see you, you know, it's it's not really good for the future of the game if you're looking like a complete nutcase and throwing clubs against the bag. So um, there's, a, there's a bit of both in regards for uh, for competition and for, you know, how you look and how you're perceived by um, by the gallery and, and fellow players. And, of course, as you say, that is very much part of your job, isn't it? There, there's, not a, there's no textbook for caddying, is there? It's a people – you've got to be a people person, be able to read people and, in particular, the person that you're working for. I would imagine there's other – uh, ladies on the LPGA who, if you were caddying for them, you would deal with them differently. Yeah, definitely, for sure, exactly. And it's such a personality thing. I mean, yeah, it's important to give the right club and everything. And but at the end of the day, if you don't get along with that player, it doesn't matter how good a caddy you are in regards to club selections. You're not gonna, you're not gonna last with that player. Mm. So you do, it's, you do have to have a vast knowledge of everything when you're a caddy. Given the, the so before we get to the courses you've seen this year, how's Birkdale playing this week? Well, really tough. We've got a northwest wind at the moment, and we've had that the last couple of days. And that means um, the first hole and the second hole are, are straight into the wind. Um, and the first two days, we've hit uh, driver three wood, and then we've hit driver rescue into the first and the second. Wow. And tough is thick. I mean, <laughs> it is an Easter egg hunt out there when you miss the fairway. It is absolutely madness. Good thing you're on Sir Jon's back. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a hell of a start to a major driver three wood into the first hole. That's a, there's no no chance to settle the nerves there, is there, Clates? Well, the first hole at Birchall was a par five for a long time. Back in the maybe when Seve played well there in '76, it was a par five, I think. But it was, it was certainly a par five back when Thompson was winning there. So they changed it to a par four a while ago. And my assumption was they would play off the back of the men's series a par five, Tommy, but obviously not. Mm. No, no, it's it's up. Um, no, it's not that. Hmm. It's still uh, just up. It's really on the men's tee. Just the front forward men's members tee. It's on. Okay. Uh, just a bit about so your... it's 450 yards. Yeah, I think it's about five, fourth. I haven't got the yardage book with me. It's up in the room. It's 435, I think it is. Okay. So it's a it's a good solid test into the wind, as you say. Just a bit about your your own golf then, Tom. You've mentioned that you go and play all these golf courses, and we're going to talk about that and whatnot. Yep. Uh, what do you play off? What's your background? How do you know Clates? I'm guessing you're somewhere from somewhere around Melbourne where he's bumped into you or you've come to know each other. What's your golfing capability and, uh, and interest there? Well, I guess if I go back to meeting Clates, I think it was through my dad. My, uh, my dad played state junior golf with Clates, so I've known Clates since I was born. Um, my earliest memory, I think the first golf tournament I ever went to would have been uh, the Australian Masters at Huntingdale. I would have been nine or ten, and I went with Dad, and we went and watched Clates. That was watched Clates for the first day, and I had very good memories of uh, watching Clates um, slam his putter into the bag, and <laughs> that's, where I, that's where I first learnt the F word and S word. <laughs> That's oh. a, oh, a great introduction to the game, really. It's Clates, fantastic. You've, you've done it again. And did he explain to you immediately afterwards everything that was wrong with Huntingdale as well, uh, having put on that performance for you? There was nothing wrong with Huntingdale back then. Oh, okay. So it was all right then. <laughs> no, that's true. There wasn't much wrong with it. But, um, um, yeah, so I got into the – I played golf when I was three years old and started playing. And, and I was born up in a country town actually called Warburton. I grew up mm-hmm. um, up there. It was a couple of hours uh, north of 
east of Melbourne and um, just really nothing to do there but a golf course. And I just, I was an only child and played golf pretty much every day. And um, then I uh, moved into Melbourne. I joined Victoria Golf Club when I was about 16, played pennant for them on the Melbourne Sandbelt for about six, seven years. And then I did my traineeship as a professional golfer at uh, an exclusive golf course called Capital Golf Course, which is run by the Crown Casino. Uh-huh. Uh, it's about five minutes from Kingston Heath. And I spent seven years there as a caddy, and I did my, my last three years there, I did my traineeship as a pro golfer there. Um, I never played the tour as such. I was never really good enough. And, and then it was virtually uh, straight after I did my traineeship, I, uh, I was offered two jobs. I was offered one to be the teaching professional at the, at the driving range there at Capital Golf Club, or two, go and caddy for Brendan Jones in Japan. And I, um, after about a couple of months of trying to decide what I wanted to do, I thought, oh, well, I'll go and give this caddying shot for a couple of months. And 10 years later, I'm still here. So how old were you then and how old are you now? I'm 36 now. Okay. And, uh, yeah, I was about 20, yeah, 24, 25, I think, when I first sort of started caddying for Brendan sort of on and off, and then it was full-time yeah. for the last 10 years. So mid, mid-20s is a great time to go travelling the world and caddying. Mid-30s, life's a whole lot different, isn't it? Uh, do you still get the same enjoyment? Do, and and, and how, how does the job and the way you interact with it change as life changes for you? Yeah, I guess, look, I'm, look I spent, uh, what, seven years living in Japan, and for me it was great. I was Japan, you know, it was, really wasn't much travelling. You know, everything was done by bullet train and, and you could get to the next tournament quite easily. I started learning language. Um, so golf sort of, I didn't really, wasn't really playing much golf. I was just sort of um, just enjoying learning language and caddying and uh, those sorts of stuff. And now that I've sort of moved on and sort of at the LPGA Tour and, and it's such a world tour, I'm really enjoying, you know, the other aspect. I'm really enjoying being back in golf again and, and playing and playing all these different courses and um so I'm, I am actually enjoying the travel because really I haven't done that much of it. It was really just within Japan and, and that was all. So I'm actually feel like a teenager again and, and just, and just feel enjoying the travel and playing golf and uh, it's just been great fun. Second lease on life. Now, the whole reason we wanted to have you on the show, Clates was telling us about all these amazing golf courses you've played just this year alone and you mentioned yourself that no matter where you go, you make a point of tracking down, you know, a golf course of note or whatever. Where did the interest in golf course architecture come from? And then we'll talk about some of the places you visited this year and your take on, on some of those things. Well, once again, it's Clates I've got to thank for that. I remember when I was uh, about 18, 19 years old, I went to a golf show and Clates, I was going to go and see Clates and I saw him there and he said, listen, Tommy, you want to know everything about golf courses, you've got to read this book. And this book was called The Confidential Guide. It was written by Tom Doak. Mm-hmm. And um, I bought it and and instantly I just loved it. I loved the way he wrote about each course. It was actually quite a controversial book and he really sort of spoke his mind, but I absolutely loved it. It was totally up. It was totally my sort of personality. It was exactly what I would have been like too, about, you know, critiquing a golf course. And I just got interested in it and I started, you know, what was important in golf course architecture, what made a great golf course, what made quirky and sort of interesting golf courses why they were good and I just really had a good interest in it and um, loved it and and uh, I guess in the last year or so I've really made an effort to you know to see all these golf courses and to see why they're so good I suppose we new nickname for you Clates Clates the gift that keeps on giving look at what you've done for Tom hey <laughs> we, we, we're at the Craft Nabisco at that beautiful course there but it's um 
<laughs> so you took off from that abandoned. So I, I saw abandoned when there were two courses there, the abandoned dunes and Pacific dunes. I, I've not, and I haven't seen the other two plus the par three course. So tell us what you made of that, the, the old McDonald and um, abandoned trails and the, and the par three course, which I think, which Jeff Ogilvy calls the most fun course there. There's a 13 hole par three course. So, it is. That is really fun. What I loved about Bandon was it's just even though there were four links courses, well, Bandon felt sort of is about you know probably sixty percent links. I would say is that all four of the courses are completely different, even though they are links, and that's what was fantastic about it. Um, and the par three course, as Jeff said, is a great way to finish around. I mean, you could go out there after you played thirty six holes, and you could take you know a slab of beer and. And you could go and play, and it's just such great design. You know, you've got so many different shots. You've got nine irons, you've got three irons, you've got big greens, small greens, and uh, deep bunkers, and it's just um, you know lots of fun. Mm. But uh, yeah, the the new courses there, um, Old McDonald was really wide off the tee. It was very sort of um, like Dr. Alistair McKenzie's designs. You know, very wide off the tee, but that created the good angles into the greens. Um, it's great for you know. Your twenty handicapper who's you know not going to lose any golf balls. There was no rough. There's just big greens, so that was uh, that's a really good golf course. And Pacific Dunes has obviously been rated as one of the you know the top fifty courses in the world, and so it should be. It's a fantastic you know, links course, and got a good variety of short holes, long holes, abandoned trails, which is up in the um, you know more set into the into the hills of, of the courses. A fantastic course done by Corin Crenshaw, who obviously did the restoration at Pinehurst, and um, yeah, it's just a great fun place to be. I'm listening to your talk there, Tom, and it's interesting that the way you're playing golf and what you're talking about at Bandon there, and the way most of us play our golf, and fun and interesting, is completely different to what you're doing for a living in professional golf, isn't it? I mean, the golf courses, as Clates has said many times, are the truly interesting thing about the game. Whacking a ball with a stick, there's many variations of it. Golf is just one, but it's actually the grounds that you play on that make golf more interesting than all of the other stick and ball games. You've got two completely different types there. Professional golf has got very little to do with whether the course is fun or sporty, which was a fabulous word we learnt recently, Clates, when we had Chris Buey on the show talking about Pinehurst and some of the old articles. And they're two completely different things, aren't they? I imagine you take two different things out of the joy you get from playing golf and the enjoyment you get from caddying at professional golf. Yeah, I do. I also believe that I think some of these golf tournaments, especially on the women's tour, the LPGA, should be playing on courses like this to bring, not only is it fun for the players, but it's fun for the gallery too. And, you know, that's, especially in professional golf, I mean, it's very important to get the gallery involved because that's what's going to bring the crowds in and create the money. So, and if it's you make enter- the golf- It's entertainment, isn't it, Tom? And we sometimes get, and professional golf sometimes get, that essentially it's entertainment. And if you don't entertain, you're going to lose the audience. Exactly, exactly right. And, you know, and that's what needs to be seen, especially on some of the courses we play on the LPGA Tour. I obviously won't mention them, but, I mean, I would say more than 75% of them are boring and it just is nothing to them. And, and, and sure enough, the gallery don't turn up and watch it. So I think it's why I like going to these other courses too is I really see that that's where the future of golf and especially women's golf should be playing something like this to make it more fun. Hmm. Because, of course, um, the advantage the women have is that the men have obsoleted so many of the great old courses around the world, Sangdale and the Valley Club and you know, we, we can name 
a thousand courses that are obsolete for the men, but for the women, of course, they're perfect. So you can take yeah. a women's field to the Valley Club or Sandale or Kingston Heath or wherever, and, and they're perfect length golf courses for the, the way the women play. So, so, yeah. so not something the women have to, ever have to worry about. You can't really take a men's tour event to Sandale anymore because every hole's a driving a wedge. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. As the women have is that they've got a much wider source of courses they can pick from. It's interesting, yeah. isn't it, Tom? Because the LPGA, particularly this year, has been by far the more compelling golf to watch week in and week out than the PGA Tour in America. We get yep. dished up both here in Australia via Fox Sports. And week in, week out, if they're both on at the same time, which happens occasionally, I'm finding myself going to the LPGA. It's more competitive and more compelling storylines. And I think Clates makes yep. a good point. The, the, the battle between player and course, particularly on good courses like your Birkdale this week and some of those ones he mentioned, is far more compelling when the ball doesn't yep. fly as far, cool. spin as much, go as high and play the way the men do. It's a much more interesting game to watch, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. You're right. And that was proof of the US Open a couple of weeks ago when uh, Michelle Wee won. It was a great course. It was compelling. It was um, obviously this story about Michelle Wee is fantastic. So, um, yeah, definitely. That was that was great. Mm. And you mentioned at the very start Michelle Wee being lively. I, was, I saw a video of her on you doing something called, is it called twerking, Tom? I wasn't familiar with this. I'm an old bloke. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure. I was actually there that night. All right, okay. <laughs> we'll let you <laughs> but, off. Uh, I can't remember too much of it myself. Yeah. <laughs> did you drink from the US Open Women's Open Trophy? You must have done. Everybody else did. I, did. I, have some, I do. I have some excellent footage of me drinking a uh, spritzer, as it's called, a red wine and lemonade out of the uh, trophy, which was quite fun. Fantastic stuff. Wonderful memories, I imagine. That's a wonderful way to spend an evening with a newly crowned US Women's Open and uh, drinking out of the trophy, that's fantastic stuff, and good luck to you. Oh, yeah, it's good stuff. In, uh, in enjoying life. Now, where have you been this year? You mentioned Band and Jones and Clates, when he, he, he pitched this to me, and Jeff, he said, you've got to get this bloke, Tom, on the show. He's played everywhere this year. He goes every way to find great golf courses, and he knows what he's talking about. He, we've got to get him on the show. Where else have you been this year? Band and Jones, obviously, everyone's heard of. Where else have you made the effort to, to sort of travel to? And what's the most trouble you've gone to to get to somewhere that you've always wanted to play, perhaps, and you sort of got within 200 miles and thought, must make the effort while I'm here? Yeah, I think, uh, well, yeah, I obviously did the Bandon trip and I was playing like 49 holes a day at Bandon Dunes and that was right in between like a six-week-in-a-row stretch and I still kept playing. So I had that one and um, then I think I went after that. I uh, I think, the well, the most notable one I went to was Sandhills in the Nebraska Sandhills, which was just incredible. And I, that was after Canada and that was actually quite a way to get to. I, we finished the, uh, the tournament called the Manulife in, uh, just outside of Toronto in Canada. Oh. And I flew from Toronto to Denver and then got in a uh, convertible Ford Mustang and drove for six hours from Denver Airport to Sandhills in the middle of absolutely nowhere, the most boring road you could possibly think of. <laughs> and, when I, and when I finally got there, I was absolutely exhausted. Then it's a golfing oasis in the middle of nowhere. It was just absolutely incredible. And did that energise uh, you? Was it one of those like a kid, you're kind of half falling asleep and you see was, the golf course and bang, you're awake, you're ready to go? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. The last two hours I was exhausted and as soon as I saw this tiny little brown sign that was covered in wood that said Sandhills, I instantly found all this energy and was uh, pretty keen to play 36 holes. So it was uh, and obviously a, an incredible place, an incredible golf course and uh, they've done everything right there. Mm. Fair. But that was definitely one of the most enjoyable. 
That's fantastic stuff. Of course, you're in the UK this week. Most of the time you're in America. Have you spent much time in the UK? And they're very different styles of golf. We sometimes get criticised on the show for being anti-American golf, which is, I can understand people might come to that. There are lots of fabulous golf courses in America, truly great golf courses in America, aren't they? We maybe don't, we don't see them from the professionals, whereas the Open tends to go to some of the great golf courses of the UK, doesn't it? It does, yeah. And it, the great thing about some of the American courses, well, especially now, the, the newer the designs like Sandhills, it's sort of like a link style, is they've got a good mixture of everything in America. Um, some of them are hard to get onto, but you can play some uh, sort of, you know, raw Melbourne style golf courses there. Obviously, Pinehurst, the Restoration's fantastic. Then you've got courses like um, Chicago Golf Club, you know, which is a bit more tree lined, but still fantastic design, great bunkering. So there's. And Pine Valley, obviously, was is the number one, number two course, you know, in the world. Fantastic sort of bunkering, totally um, surrounded by pine trees, uh, you and different grasses. You've got everything there. America does have a great variety and a great selection of fantastic golf courses that, um, yeah, the public don't see. I suppose like everything in life, America really does have the very best and the very worst of everything generally, doesn't it? If you're looking for the best of something, you'll find it in the States, and the worst of something, you'll find it there as well, and too many people concentrate on the worst. I guess, Clates, Pine Valley, Clates, did you not tell us it was just a brutally difficult test, the course there at Pine Valley? I'm not super familiar. I've read a bit about it, but I've not been super familiar with it over time. I I, I stupidly... Played off the. There are some back tees there that are crazy. So, but you're a I, pro, Clates. That's where the pros belong. Well, I was playing with Michael Cocking, who can actually hit the ball properly. But I was. Uh, I played off the back tees, and it's brutally long for me. I mean, I can hit it to 250 yards, and it's. It, it, it takes all that to get to the fairway on the, the fourth and the 18th from the new tees they built there. But yeah, it's. We, we played there the week after. The Masters, so, so it was kind of early in the season, sort of mid-April. So, so I guess it was cold and it was playing quite long but it's an incredibly difficult course for a good player I mean great fun I mean, I mean it catches that mix between great fun and difficult really well mm. better than anyone in the world probably except that you know as Doug said in the confidential guide Tommy you would never call it the ideal course because a 20 market can't play it really I mean they can try and play it but yeah, you know, it's yeah you're right it, it, it's pretty much unplayable for a bad player but you can go to the old course at St Andrews, and everyone can play that golf mm. course. You can, you, know, you can, apart from the first hole, you can putt the ball around that golf course. Yeah, that's fine. So yeah, two exactly. golf courses, but much different. But one, Pine Valley, certainly aimed at first class play only, really. So, so if you were going to criticise it, you would say it's really not yeah. possible for the average player. But okay. yeah, I mean, awesome is a word that's not only yeah. just describe Pine Valley. Um, Tommy, you went out to Bally Neal as well on the way to Sandhills. How was that? Yeah, that was incredible. That was really, really good. Uh, a little, um, it's obviously it's extremely exclusive and you couldn't get on the course, but that was about three hours um, from Colorado. Uh, three hours, from, yeah, from, uh, sorry, Denver Airport. And it was, that was, yeah, a similar style to Sandhills. Um, and, yeah, it felt, uh, you know, like you were the only one out there. You couldn't hear anything. You, you could hear the ball land. You know, the, you can look for 20 miles and not see anything. I mean, a house, an electricity wire, a road, nothing. You could hear and the ball was, land. Are you, you serious? <laughs> with the driver. There was, no, there was no wind one morning. I played at like a stupid time. I teed off at like 5.30 in the morning and all you could hear were these metal larks in, in, the, in the background. So the only thing you could hear, and I hit my drive down the first and I heard the clunk, 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 clunk. It was, it was incredible. It was wow. like never had a, I've never had anything like it in all my life. It was just 
And that's just the way golf should be. You know, you didn't see golf carts. There was no waterfalls or, or you know, garden beds or anything like that. It was just tea, flag, that was it. And it's just such a great experience. Some of these golf courses you're mentioning, of course, Tom, are, are actually quite, <coughs> pardon me, quite new, but they're throwbacks to to some of the courses I imagine you're going to try to get to while you're in the UK, aren't they? The the culture of golf has changed not necessarily for the better in modern times, hasn't it? Has that been your sort of experience? Definitely. It's fantastic. I mean, the golfer's design has just turned almost full circle, and I think it's fantastic. I mean, you're right, it's, everything's just gone back to the old school design. I mean, you had people like Pete Dye and Robert Trent Jones Jr. I mean, they design good courses, but everything has literally turned full circle. Everything's, you know, all these ball washers and carts and this modern designers have got away from that and it's fantastic and um, it's definitely I hope the way golf should be I mean Pinehurst was a perfect example I mean it looked brown or everything but it was you know they didn't use anywhere near as much water to try and make it look green all the time it was natural it had this natural wastelands the bunkers looked like they'd been there for a thousand years they didn't even look like they were made and um, you know that's the way golf was was originally meant to be and um, I think it's it's just much better, one, obviously, for the strategy of the game and, and for the environment as well. Just talk a bit about that week at Pinehurst, Tom. We may look back in 15 or 20 years and talk about it as a pivotal point in golf. Water is becoming more and more scarce, less and less readily available. It's, it's the resource that will probably take over from oil, if you believe some people, is the <laughs> thing they'll have wars about. Pouring it on golf courses doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But but that aside, there was a lot of pushback against Pinehurst. I mean, Donald Trump was probably the best known of it. But what do you think might be the importance of Pinehurst in the long term and what we saw unfold there? What was the player reaction? I mean, some of the pros have probably never confronted a golf course quite like that before, I would imagine. Yeah, they wouldn't. I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is shot selection. I mean, on a golf course where there's no rough and you've got the greens that sort of slope off, you've got so many more options. I mean, that was the part of the US Open that was that was non-existent. I mean, um, I remember Clates telling me years ago when Jeff Ogilvie missed the green, you know, on the 16th straight away, he hit like a, he hit a six iron or whatever it was. And as soon as he missed the green, he just went straight to the bag and got the lob wedge, you know, because he knew that that was all you could play. But Pinehurst was the obvious thing was if you missed the green, you didn't know what it was. First of all, you didn't know where it was. You didn't know if it was in a bunker or it was in a wasteland or if it was just off the green. And now you've got shot options that can change from using a putter, a chip and run with a six iron. You can lob wedge, which was pretty rare, or bumping into the bank with a pitching wedge. Mm. I mean, the shot options were there. And um, I think that's what has been missing in golf for definitely the last 10 years in, in, in all golf tournaments, not just the US Open. But um, And I think that's what we talked about before, it makes it fun for the game, fun for the gallery. They go, oh, look at this. He's going to use the putter from here. And that's what's in, it's important. And um, and look, at they proved it with the winners. Look at Martin Kimer. You know, he won the players like a month earlier or whatever it was. Michelle, he was in good form. The good players are up there, and it was a proven test that, um, that Pinehurst was, you know, the way golf should be. The interesting thing about it, of course, Tom, is how sort of um, – Fringe golfers, for want of a better term, or people who experience golf very differently to that most of the time, and non-golfers kind of looked at that. And I, I told the boys this. So I remember watching Pinehurst with my mum earlier a couple of mornings saying, look at this, isn't this look fantastic? And she sort of looked at me a bit funny, and we watched Congressional the next week. They had an aerial shot, and I said, can you see the difference between this and last week's? And she said, yes, this is beautiful. Golf's very hung yeah. up on this notion of green and beautiful, isn't it? And, and 
And that's taken away a lot of that stuff that, that you're talking about. And from a golfer's perspective, how do we educate people there? You must get asked a lot of the time, oh, you're a golf caddy. Oh, what do you think about this, that, or the other? What are non-golfers and sort yeah, of fringe I, golfers? I, what do you sort of talk to them about? Look, I think my answer's always been, I think Augusta's had a lot to do with this. And Augusta's very green and very lush and very – and it's sort of been like the, the model golf course, as you could say. And Augusta is fantastic, obviously, and – but it's not for every golf course, mm. and um, you know that's the that's where I think a lot of this has come from, and that's always been my answer to them. And uh, I think it's yeah, the, the water that they're, they're using and the amount of money they have to spend at Augusta National, you know, not all golf clubs have that money. No, of course. You not. know, so I think, uh, and that's the other thing. Augusta is Augusta. It's a special place and, and leave it like that. It's a great place for it, but not every golf course is like that. Disneyland for adults, as Lee Westwood described it. Which, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> That's a good way. which was kind of appropriate. I guess the other thing, Clayton, this might be one of the important things that comes out of Pinehurst, as Tom just said, a lot less of pros reaching for the lob wedge around the green, which a lot of 20 and 18 markers could learn a lot from, not going for the lob wedge around the greens. Took that well, option away, really, didn't it, for a lot of them? And maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing if it spread through the rest of the game. Well, it'd be a good thing for every kid to not put a lot of wedge in the bag until they're 18 years old. But yeah, yeah I mean, Tommy, we were at the craft. I mean, that, that, that was the biggest thing I saw there was that every time you missed a green, it was take the, you know, the lob wedge out or, and just pitch it out of that long grass. And that's so much of the week to week stuff. But um, you, UK for so long, I think maybe you're, you're at, at Royal Canberra, the Australian Open two years ago or a year and a half ago, where Michelle Wee played and missed the cut. So you've seen her play. Now for a, a year and a half since then, what's the biggest difference in her game from missing the cut at the Australian Open at Royal Canberra to winning the Open at Pinehurst? You know her pretty well. You've seen her play a lot. How do you, yep. What's kind of happened there, really? Well, the biggest thing should happen at Royal Canberra was what she had two shots happening, a high block or a massive hook. Yeah, and she now blocked she's... The, she blocked it down the 18th the first day and made nine there with a one putt, I think. So, yeah, I, so I saw that. Good nine. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the biggest difference in her game is, is she's got this low ball. She's hitting these sawn-off low shots, and that's taking the block out of play. You know, if you try and hit the ball obviously super low, it takes out the, you know, the coming to the inside and the big block. So she's hitting everything super low, and she's putting better. You know, with this um, tabletop putting stance or whatever you want to call it, she's, um, you know, she's not hasn't got the yips anymore. So the two parts of her game is definitely, yeah, she's hitting the ball super low and just keeping it in control and not worrying about distance and making the putts. So did she have the yips? <coughs> or, or, well, or she it was, was probably so much the yips. I was never really paired with her during that time she was was playing poorly. I was only paired with her once, and it was more a ball striking that stood out. So, but she was missing a lot of two and three footers. But um, you know, once she changed to a split cross hand grip, it seemed to have, uh, you know she was holding the putts a lot better. And but maybe it probably wasn't the yips. She just totally just lost confidence. I think. Yeah. Mm. It's a funny game. I remember she said at the Craft Nabisco, Tom, they had her on, I think, after the second or third round, and Kelly Tillman said, no, we've got, just got a video here of your swing, and she said, oh, I haven't looked at one of those for six, eight months. I just play golf now. That's incredibly important, yep. isn't it? For a player of that level, you've got to know how to hit the ball to get there. Forget about all that mechanical stuff and just play the game. It seems to me that's what she's done. I'm going to putt like this. I don't care what you think. I'm one of the best players in the world. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what has happened, and 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 she's worked out all of this herself too. That's been the big thing. She hasn't listened. 
she's been criticized in the past and, and it was her fault she was listening to so many people, you know, do this and make it look like this and now it's just all been on her call. You know, her putting stance was, was her call. No one else. It wasn't David Ledbetter's, wasn't her parents. That was her decision and I think now she's got more of an understanding of her golf swing and what works best for her. It sounds kind of corny, but from the outside, she looks to have grown into a woman from a girl in the last 18 months to two years. It's been relentless on her since she was very young, and she seems to me finally comfortable in her own skin. Similar thing to what happened to Kari Webb, I think, about seven or eight years ago. Just seems more comfortable in her own skin, and suddenly the results come, which is probably no great surprise. <clears throat> this interesting golf course architecture that you got, Tom, does this bleed over? Does this help your players? Does so? Does so on? Do you bore her with <laughs> theories about oh, golf course design and all the rest of it? Now you should play them. Is it a help? It's funny you say that because I, I've been driving my boss nuts for the last six months <laughs> when I talk about it because well, you just shut up about golf course. But the funny thing is this week she's had the camera out. She goes, oh, this is a great hole. And then she'll take a photo and she's never, ever done that. I mean, she's this like a robot out there. You know, she doesn't care if it's what sort of golf course it is. But this, she's really taken notice this week. She goes, oh, wow, look at this par three. This is great. So as much as it's been driving her nuts, me talking about it and relentless course architecture and me swearing and carrying on about how bad some of the courses we play, it's sort of slowly starting to sneak in and I think she's starting to get it. And it's it's not only important for golf architecture, but in the future. But it's I'm sort of doing it to help her game because she's very much a robot, and you know Koreans and Japanese have never really had the luck of um, they've never been lucky enough to have uh, you know golf courses they can just walk on and play. You know they've all had to play driving range golf, and it's so easy to become a robot, and so. Being able to talk about architecture and playing different shots has, has brought some imagination into her game, and I hope I've been able to help in that way because I do believe that's going to be the area that's going to help her in the future. It's getting this sort of that feel and imagination in her game rather than sure mechanics are important, but um, at some point you've got to have you know some feel and imagination out there as well. This might sound silly, but I guess we were sort of talking about that with Michelle Wee. But isn't it important if you enjoy playing golf more? And the sorts of things you're talking about, for most of us, I think, make golf a more enjoyable pursuit. Don't, don't you naturally play? That might be a better one for Clades, perhaps. Clades, the, the more you got into golf course architecture and enjoyed the game, do you think in a lot of ways you play better than you used to, perhaps? No, I played worse. Ah. I played much worse because I hated it. I mean, my, which is really odd. I mean, because I grew up watching tournaments at Royal Melbourne, Victoria, Yarra Yarra, Metropolitan, Kingston Heath. And I assumed that professional golfers played on courses like that every every week. And I soon learned that that wasn't what happened around the world. You played on wherever you could play for, for the most amount of money you could play for. So there were guys in Europe who would look at me like I was an idiot, and I probably was, when I said, why are we playing this sort of XYZ course in the middle of Ireland for £600,000 when we were at Port Monarch last year on a great course for £400,000. They said, well, would you rather pay for £600,000 or £400,000? I said, I'd rather pay for £400,000 at Port Monarch. And they looked at me like, well, you're an idiot. (laughs) And I I guess if you're in the game to make money, then it was stupid. But I always loved playing great courses. So so there was a time in Europe in the – there was one period in the mid-'90s when for five consecutive weeks – there were five fantastic commercial reasons to go to a dreadful golf course and there was five in a row and it was like, I'm fed up with this. And I, and I, 
I wasn't playing well, so it wasn't really the fault of the courses. But, you know, the more I started to really think about design and the more I chased out the good courses and played them, the more I got frustrated at playing bad ones. So, and, and in a sense, I, I guess that's, it might be part of Ogilvy's problem, even, even though he's playing, hitting the ball better this year but not playing so well, is that, you know, he's like me, just goes crazy at, you know, bad setups and dull courses and courses that don't kind of reward, you know, thoughtful play and interesting shot making. But, you know, in a sense, it's because we grew up in Melbourne where, where there's a mm. plethora of terrific courses within sort of five or six miles of each other. So, so you just want golf to be like that all the time and it's not. Mm. Tom, so, 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 in a sense, understanding architecture when you're on a really interesting course. If you, you know, if you'd read Mackenzie's book, you would you would understand how to play Royal Melbourne because you would know that the bunkers weren't there to catch bad shots, but they were there to catch the shots that were almost perfect. And you would figure out that every yard you played closer to the bunker, the better the line of the flag, and the same at St Andrews. So you you get inspired when you play good courses, but you get frustrated when you play bad ones, and. and I guess that's the difference. Mm, probably the, yeah. the the really good players can probably put it aside. I think about Ben Crenshaw and others who, you know, it, it must drive you mad if you're a golf course architect enough to play professional golf because while everyone thinks playing professional golf would be a great way to make a living, in some ways it would be, you play a real lot of bad golf courses, don't you, Tom? Really, really boring, uninteresting yeah. golf courses. Yeah, definitely. And obviously <clears> I can't mention them. I won't mention them on air, but, uh, yeah, it's, it can be very, very boring and distracting. What's your take on that? You've watched Sue obviously become more and more interested in this subject. You know, she pulled out the camera this week. I mean, that's a huge stride ahead. And Clates, you should pat your protege on the back there. He's done a good thing for the game. How, how do you do you see it having an impact on her game as yet? Does she enjoy going to look forward to going to golf course more, perhaps, when it's a golf course that's of some interest? Is there anything in that, or is professional golf really it's, just about execution? It's slowly, it's slowly starting to creep in. I mm. think she's probably unaware of it, but it's slowly she's. I, I can see that it's slowly starting to have an effect here. Um, it's, it's not 100% there yet, but it's definitely getting there. Because mm. you've done the same thing to board Sue, Sue Oh, haven't you, Clates? I mean, I think you pestered her on a plane trip to America the whole way, 16 hours. Poor girl, she never had a chance, did she? Well, well she, she didn't know anything about golf course. She just played golf. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she, she asked me what the best course in the world was. and I, said, well, Pine, I mean, she'd never heard of Pine Valley. So I think yeah. this, she's going to be lucky enough to go and play it this year when she's over at the US Amateur. So, so she's kind of excited about that. But she she never really understood there was a, such a thing as golf course architecture. It was just a tee and a it was a tee and a ball and a stick and a hole and and, and you just went from one to the other in as few shots as you could. So, so I mean, Sue's playing the group ahead of Tommy this week, so he'll be watching her whole putts all day. But <laughs> she, um, you know, she played rules from George's in the British Amateur a couple of weeks ago and. You know, so when you go over there, it's going to be like playing golf on the moon. You won't have seen anything like this place when you get there. Uh, and I think she was kind of shocked when she saw it. But, she, you know, she went there. Then she you know, she played the qualifying at Southport. And now she's played at Birkdale. So she's had a real sense of what golf on the links is likely. And, and there's nothing like it in Australia. We went and played Sandra's Beach before she went to St. George's. And she said, well, you know, it's kind of a links course. So well, it's kind of a links course, but it's not really. I mean, the only links course in Australia is Bamboo Jones. Mm. So... You know, she's had a real taste of um, much different golf around the world the, the last three weeks, and it's it's a part of every player's education. And, and we saw last year at Muirfield, it took Phil Mickelson twenty years to learn it. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how would it take Phil Mickelson twenty years to win the British Open? I mean, you know, there's the most the most imaginative player of his generation, aside from Seve, 
it took him 20 years to figure out how to play a Linux course. I mean, it's staggering, really. But yeah, you know. Um, now, Tommy, you were up in, speaking of great courses, you were up in Dornight last week in Brora. How? Oh, um, my God. That was so much fun. Yeah, last week I had it off and uh, the first thing I did was I had a flight into London and then I drove for like five hours and stayed the night in Glasgow at a friend's place and then drove up the next morning, which was Wednesday morning, and first course I played was Cruden Bay, um, which is just north of uh, Aberdeen. And, uh, yeah, I heard a lot about obviously read a lot about it from, from Tom Doak's book and it's the cover of his book has got the picture of Cruden Bay on the front of it, so I was very keen to play it and... And, uh, yeah, there was some great aspects of that design, a few blind holes, but um, what I loved about those blind holes was you know, there was no hazards on the other side, you know, and that was, that's, I know Mackenzie had written about, you know, there should be a limit of blindness, but it should be there for the sake of variety. And uh, that, was, that was definitely true at Cruden Bay. And, and uh, there was a lot of similarities I saw with the blind holes, you know, like uh, the 70th at Kingston Heat's a prime example. The second shot's blind, but th- there's no hazards up there, which I think is great. You don't, like, get over the hill and go, oh, my God, I'm in a water hazard or I'm in a deep bunker. And so there was a few holes like that. Uh, and then obviously made the trip from there up to Doorknock and uh, played, oh, played uh, Brewer first, sorry. And Brewer was an experience that was just a nice – Little short course had electric fences around the green to stop the sheep and the cat getting on the green, and then you tee off the fourth, and there's you know, there's a bull you know, shagging a cow on the left edge of the fairway. And like, you, know, just, you don't get this at the, at the US Open, <laughs> that's gold. But at the same time, it was such a fantastic course layout, was too. It was great, you know, everything was just purely natural and, and still had some great design and, and strategy aspect points to the course, which was made it even more exciting. And um, and then, yeah, obviously went from there to Doorknock, which was a great mixture of of, uh, of uh, seaside links. It had a feel of uh, like St Andrews to it. Then you stood on another hole and it felt like you were at Sunningdale where you sort of had that, that heathland sort of feel to it. And then, um, you know, I had like a, a feel of brewer about it too. You know, it was it was such a great variety, and uh, it was it was definitely one of my you know all time top ten courses that I've played. It being an LPGA tour caddy, does this help with access to some of these places? I mean, you mentioned in America in particular, some places are difficult to get on. I imagine that must be being in the golf milieu must help you get access to some of these places. I mean, what a journey you're on, by the way, might I say. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm loving every mum. Really excited about everything that I'm doing at the moment. And I mean, three things that are really helping me. One, obviously, I have the name Tom Watson, which seriously helps. <laughs> two, two, I'm a, a PGA professional as well, so I have like a PGA members card, mm-hmm. so I can um, you know play for sort of you know a, a discounted rate. And, and three, having Mike Clayton. Mike, obviously, Clayton was the one that got me on Sandhills. I'd written three letters to Sandhills and got nothing back, and it was through Mike Clayton that I, I was able to. Um, to get on uh, the course like that, so thanks for that, Clayton. But yeah, I'm. Uh, it, it's I'm very lucky at the moment, mm. for sure. Clayton's the gift, the gift that keeps on giving and giving well, and giving. Another well, example. Well, in fairness, it wasn't me. It was Richard Sadler, who the owned Bamboogle, who never played golf until he built Bamboogle, who's come across all these amazing people who invite him to come and play their courses. So he and Dick Young are good friends. So Richard organised it really. But um, yeah, it's an amazing place, Angels. Um, well, what else can we talk about, Tommy? No, whatever you want. I was I was about to say to you, Tom, uh, Clay's mentioned you'll be watching Sue 
whole putts all day in front of you because you'd be watching that from the fairway, caddying for So Yun. So that's not such a bad thing to do, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's the case. <laughs> How do you rate uh, So Yun's chances this week and what sort of player does Birkdale set up for? We're about to watch the tournament unfold for those who'll be listening probably once it's over. They won't be interested, but uh, Yako Uehara is leading at two under through eight holes. What sort of uh, What sort of player, what sort of scoring are we looking at this week, Tom, do you think? Well, I think um, the, the couple of things that obviously poke up, uh, come to mind is, is the position off the tee. You know, you obviously don't need length. And the greens are actually, you know, probably about 15, 16 of the greens are relatively flat. So I think uh, a player that's it's really just going to be a ball-striking thing is, is, uh, is going to be key. Putting, I think, is, uh, you know, obviously can come into play, you know, if there's a bit of wind. But, uh, you know, the greens aren't overly difficult. Mm. So I think... Um, yeah, that's uh, a player that's just really just going to be a good ball striker. Position, don't get in the bunkers, and limit the double bogeys, I think, is the big thing too. There's not many birdie holes out there. It's just more the fact of just keeping the double bogeys off the scorecard. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it's probably, it probably sounds silly. It's true of every golf tournament, isn't it? But then there are certain courses where that is really so true because the double bogeys are so easy to come by if you just get out of position, which is what we saw at the World Cup last year at Royal Melbourne. I remember saying to you, Clates, so many doubles, you know, players not making bogeys, making doubles because they got out of position. And that seemed to really sort of uh, sort of strike them. Tom, we probably should let you go. I think you're only about three and a half hours away from hitting the first tee. Can't do anything but wish you the very best of luck this week, my friend. You and so you and it would be, uh, it'd be terrific to see you have a good week. I'm sure you will. Uh, it's exciting. You're living the dream. You're a lovely bloke, but I'm... <laughs> Kind of not liking you very much just at the moment, and that's that's just jealousy. But but that's kind of what happened. But uh, it's been terrific for you to take some time, particularly today, and particularly so close to tea time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, oh, no, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on the show. I hope I can uh, get back on again. But uh, yeah, no, I always love talking golf, and obviously, it's uh, yeah, we'll see what happens uh, this week. But thanks very much for having me not on. At all, if you stay on this journey, you'll be back for sure. No doubt about that. Clates, uh, a thank you to you, and thank you, Clates, for the heads up on Tom. It's been fabulous to chat to yeah. you. Lovely bloke to talk to, and uh, and what a what a journey he's on. I'm sure So Young will play well this week, Tommy. Uh, she's. Always the first one, two, or three in greens of regulation. So if you can get some easy greens and make some putts, I'd be looking forward to seeing you on Sunday night. Yeah, no, look, she's been preparing really well this week. So I'm really, really happy with her preparation. So, yeah, hopefully see what happens. Yep. Terrific stuff. Well, we'll let you go. And that wraps it up for State of the Game this week. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. We'll be back to do it all again in a couple of weeks, hopefully with Jeff Shackelford next time, who was just in transit this week and couldn't join us. But we'll be here along next time on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.